following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. What the fuck? Yeah, you can say that again. I am not a summertime person. As you guys can probably tell, I missed last week. And the reason for that was I was brain dead. The summer heat is just not for me. (laughs) Thank God September is just around the corner. Football, yay. Um, But no, cooler temperatures. (sighs) I cannot wait. I don't know about you guys, but... Like, I have just been mentally drained. And it's not, like, from stress or anything. I mean, yeah, sure, we live in stressful times. But just this heat, my God, it just doesn't let up. And we've been getting, like, wicked storms and stuff lately, and, oh, I know, grumpy old man. But no, like, seriously, like, around here, I don't know in different parts of the world and whatnot, but I know, like, in the Windsor area, it's just been humidity and heat. I mean, the other night, like, because I work midnights. The other night, it was like 28 degrees Celsius at 2 o'clock in the morning. What the fuck? (laughs) Like, this is nuts. And I think that's why I always kind of like working nights is because, you know, there's no sunshine, so it's supposed to be cooler. And wow, 
it's just been mentally exhausting. Physically exhausting. I mean, ugh. But I mean, I I, I don't want to start off an episode just whining away, but it just... I can't wait till it snows. <laughs> I know people are like, shut the fuck up. No, um, seriously, give me my cooler temps. Give me my jack-o'-lanterns. And hell, I'm looking forward to seeing people posting about pumpkin spice again. What the hell's wrong with me? But that said, from the Next Level Network of Podcasts, Studio Zero and the dank pits of the Carfax Abbey. Welcome back, everyone, to What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero. And I am your host, Exhausted Postmortem Paul. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, okay, so start off this episode talking about something that's not necessarily horror-related, but it's film-related. And I mean, I don't want to be another cuckhole who, you know, trashes a movie just because, hey, I didn't like X, Y, and Z. So I actually, instead, what I'll do is I'll highlight on the best part of the movie. I recently took in that uh, Marvel movie, Black Widow, finally watched it, thought, okay, you know, I've seen everything else up to this point, so why not watch Black Widow? And I have to say this. Florence Pugh is a gem. Jesus. I mean, David Harbour is in it as well. He has his moments, but, like, nothing comes close to just how much Florence... I mean, she crushes every second she's on the screen. She was a delight. For a movie that's supposed to be Scarlett Johansson's, like, you know, swan song out of the Marvel Universe or whatever... Florence upstaged her. Big time. I mean, well, and this is the thing. I mean, it's a Marvel movie, right? So, I mean, everything is by the numbers. It's a Marvel movie. It's three acts, you know. It is what it is. Lots of bangs and booms and fights. and Over-the-top CGI. Much-needed suspension of disbelief. I mean, this is coming from a universe that gave us Infinity War and Endgame. You know, movies that had aliens and time travel and even a reference to Squidward. (laughs) But, I mean, that Black Widow movie, uh, Florence crushes it as Yelena. And, I mean, granted, I get it. I, I understand why the movie happens, because it has to set up... Spoilers. It's setting up the, uh, the Hawkeye series. Which I have to say, like, I think, in terms of Marvel, I think I actually enjoy their TV series so much better than their movies. Probably because it gets more of a chance to, you know, explore its storytelling and whatnot. Like, I mean, what? It, WandaVision was a lot of fun, Loki was hilarious. And this new What If animated series has been pretty much solid. I mean, that the second episode where it was uh, If T'Challa Was Star-Lord, that was, that was pretty fucking epic. Um, but yeah, I've realized that like I, I, I really 
enjoy the TV series a lot more than I do the movies. Not saying I don't enjoy the movies. I do. I, I'm like everybody else, you know. They're fun. They're popcorn movies, right? But the TV series, oh, they are just something else. That's the thing. With the Black Widow movie, though, like, I felt the movie itself was like a 5 out of 10. It wasn't anything, like, great. But it wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. I didn't walk away going, well, that was a waste of two hours and 15 minutes. No, I mean, it was it was all right. But then you have the performance by Florence, and that was easily a 9 out of 10. She was just an absolute joy to watch. But, I mean, we kind of already knew that. And you see the movie Midsommar, and, I mean, it what last episode it was you know Affleck you the bomb in Phantoms yo well this time around you know Florence is the bomb in Midsummer, yo <laughs> like but I don't know I mean Black Widow movie is what it is it's there I don't know that it's worth $34.99 Canadian funds anyways I think in the states it's like $28.99 or something like that I don't know <sighs> it was alright but, I mean, for this week's episode, though, we're talking something legendary now. Um, because episode 102. We're going back, way back, to Valentine's Day of 1931. A little film that was directed by Todd Browning. Starred probably one of the most iconic performances by any actor actor obviously I'm talking about Bella Lugosi yep from 1931 the movie that started the whole Universal Studio monsters craze Dracula Dracula I don't know I, I can't do a Hungarian accent for the life of me but yeah, this week it's going to be Dracula. Um, and this was a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing. Um, I mentioned about the summer heat. <laughs> One of the things the summer heat has done was made me um, really struggle to come up with something to talk about. I spent most of last week just trying to think of a movie that I wanted to do for the 102nd episode. I toyed with the idea of the 2019 Pet Cemetery movie because I kind of want to give that its day in court. I know when I did the 1989 Pet Cemetery, way back when, I felt that I think I was a little unfair to that 2019 movie because I was comparing it so much to the 89 classic. And so I had toyed with that idea I was like maybe you know approach this differently don't compare it so much just give it its day in court and then I don't know it just didn't feel right I don't know why it just didn't feel right so toyed with the idea of sleepaway camp I thought hey let's kiss the summer goodbye with a summer camp movie and again, I don't know, I just wasn't feeling it and just seemed like the brain being mush. It was like, I'm not going to do this justice and then it's going to end up being another Suspiria episode. So, finally came up with this idea to do the Universal Studios Dracula. And I think it's going to be a solid episode. I've, 
it was fun to research. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know about this movie that I learned. Which is kind of why I like doing this podcast too, because some of these movies, I go into it and I've loved them my whole life and whatnot. But I really didn't know everything about them. And this was one of those movies. There was a lot I learned about, you know, the origins of vampires and stuff like that, you know, in literature and pop culture and whatnot. And a lot that I thought I knew, I didn't. And it was like, all right, you know, this this could be something worthwhile. It's also given me an idea. I'm announcing this now. It's given me an idea for the month of October month of October is obviously it's the month of Halloween it's spooky season as they call it and whatnot and this year I wanted to try and figure out a theme and doing this episode kind of gave me that idea so announcing it now for the month of October all podcast episodes will be about Universal Studios monsters so Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mummy, The Wolfman, they're all going to get hit upon come October. So that's now decided. But for this week, I'm going to jump back to where it all began. So we're going to do the trailer timeout, um, which is an interesting trailer. Trailers back in the 30s weren't like they are today. As a matter of fact, they're very non-spoilery, um, <laughs> unlike today's trailers. So we'll do the trailer timeout. When we come back, we're going to explore vampires. We're going to explore um, Bella Lugosi. And um, also, I'm going to say this now. There's a little bit of a twist to this episode because as much as Bella Lugosi is pretty much the most iconic of the Draculas there was actually a performance that I felt kind of outshone if that's even a word (laughs) Um, Bela Lugosi's performance which I mean granted it hands down one of the greatest things to ever happen horror films but there's actually one other performance that I kind of enjoy a little bit more but all of that after our trailer timeout starting now I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? What's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms. 
and he made me drink. You know, not to take away from Dracula or anything like that or, you know, put a blemish on the movie or whatever. But, you know, we kind of have to blame Dracula for the reason for sequels. <laughs> because after this movie got released, there was like a series of sequels that followed, you know, Son of Dracula, Dracula's Daughter, uh, even Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which Dracula was in. Um and I, I bring this up because it was just reported today that Netflix has picked up the rights to this new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie that's coming out that is supposed to be a quote-unquote direct sequel to the original. <laughs> Again, we're doing this. But, um, you know, we, we say it all the time in a horror film, like in the horror genre. Oh, another sequel, another damn reboot, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, going back, like... The Universal Studio movies, you know, they had sequels. They had, and then obviously reboot after reboot after reboot. But um, not always Universal Studios. But what I'm what I'm getting at is, it's it's the one thing that horror fans tend to, you know, discuss or some complain about and whatnot is all the sequels and reboots and remakes and stuff like that. But it really all started with this. When you actually think about it, which in a way, this is kind of a reboot to a certain 1922 silent film. So I'll talk more about that in a bit. But yeah, so in essence, Dracula really started a whole lot of things. But anyways, let's start at the very beginning. Dracula, directed by Todd Browning, was released... February 14th, 1931 in the United States, a month later in Canada on March 13th. As I stated, directed by Todd Browning, who I might add, like, I might also add this, that he also did this movie called Freaks. I really recommend Freaks. Uh, it's different. And it's an older film, so granted, it's not going to have all your colorful little CGI and whatnot, but it is a very solid and somewhat disturbing film. Um, and yeah, it's back in the day, I guess Todd Browning was like considered to be sort of like the, the go-to horror guy back in the day, him and James Whale and whatnot. So I'm not going to go through his whole resume, but I will, I will definitely recommend Freaks. Um, now in terms of directors, it's also kind of an uncredited, um, fact that the movie's cinematographer, Carl Fruind, or Fruind, I can never say his last name right, he also was considered a director, um, more or less because every now and then Todd would take off to go do something else and Carl would continue the work, so as well as being the cinematographer, he was sort of the interim or co-director of the film. The film was produced by Todd Browning and Carl Lemel Jr., who Lemel Jr.'s cousin, Carla, 
actually has a small role in the beginning of this film. She's one of the women in the coach, the the co- co- coaching. Uh, what is it? What do they call it? Ho- horse and carriage. But um, yeah, the the coach that's carrying Renfield off to Castle Dracula. I cannot do a Hungarian accent or a Romanian accent, so every now and then when I'm going to do that, it's going to sound bad. The screenplay for this film was written by Garrett Fort, and it's based on the story by Bram Stoker. It's also based off of a screenplay from a stage performance. I'll, I'll explain that in a bit. But, okay, so with the movie Dracula, okay, in 1922, I mentioned there was a silent film that this is sort of a remake of, in a way. Uh, In 1922, the German movie Nosferatu was released. However, that movie was released without permission from Stoker's estate. And therefore, despite it being the first adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, this film has been considered the first actual adaptation because Nosferatu as a matter of fact there was apparently there was a lawsuit and the Stoker estate won Nosferatu was supposed to be you know obliterated deleted from the history banks and whatnot and somehow or another that movie's still around but uh yeah so technically According to Hollywood, this is the first actual adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel. Makeup was done by Jack Pierce, and the visual effects done by Frank Booth, William Davidson, and John P. Fulton. And I mention that very vaguely for the simple fact that there really isn't much in terms of special effects. I mean, a bat on a string held by, you know, being made to look like it's flying on a fishing rod kind of thing. (laughs) That's uh, about the extent of the special effects. And there's no music score for this film. So no composer to mention. Let's jump right into the starring cast. Starring cast for this film. Well... I'm going to leave the best for last, I guess. Should I just do him first? Ah, why not? Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula. I talked about him, uh, ooh, what episode was that? Episode 14, I think? Going way back. Uh, movie White Zombie. Bella Lugosi was in that. He's been in other movies, obviously, but I mentioned White Zombie because it was an episode that I did a review on this podcast for that still gets downloads to this day. I'm quite impressed with that, actually. And obviously, White Zombie was the inspiration for the band's name, you know, same name, White Zombie, whatnot. Uh, But yeah, Bella Lugosi, iconic as he is is Count Dracula. Helen Chandler plays Mina Seward. And then, oh, okay, so David Manners as Jonathan Harker. Well, they call him John Harker, but it's actually Jonathan Harker. Uh, He also worked with Lugosi um, in the movie The Black Cat, and he worked with Boris Karloff in The Mummy. Uh, Dwight Fry. As Renfield. 
He was also a cast member in two other Universal Studio monster movies, uh, Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. In both films, he played different characters, though, even though they're direct sequels. But yeah, Dwight Fry. I will I will definitely talk about him a little bit later. Our Van Helsing for this movie is not Anthony Hopkins. Although I have to say, Anthony Hopkins, probably one of my favorite Van Helsing. Do I even say that? Because Peter Cushing is up there too. Van Helsing and Dracula are two characters that their actors, for the most part, have always been solid. In most iterations, anyways. But uh, Van Helsing in this movie was played by Edward Van Sloan. He also played in the 1931 movie Frankenstein. He played in a movie called Behind the Mask. Not the Leslie Vernon story. This is an older one. Uh, He was in the movie The Death Kiss with Bela Lugosi and David Manners. They were both in that as well. He was in Dracula's Daughter where he once again played Van Helsing. He was in The Mummy. He was, uh, here's something interesting, because I talked about Marvel earlier. Uh, So way back in 1944, there was a serial known as Captain America. And Edward Van Sloan was a part of that. The interesting thing about that is Captain America, in that TV serial, used a gun. Oh, Batman never would have used a gun. Captain America did. <laughs> um, David Van or David uh, Edward Van Sloan was also in uh, the Phantom Creeps. Another uh, that was a TV serial that uh, Bella Lugosi was part of, and Edward in that show played a character named Jarvis. Jarvis is another Marvel reference. I don't know why I keep talking about Marvel this episode, but I just keep doing it. Uh, Ending it off, we got Herbert Bunston as Dr. Seward and Francis Dade as Lucy Weston. The runtime for this movie is a very quick hour and 15 minutes long. Back in the day, there wasn't a rating system. There was no such thing as PG or rated R or any of that stuff. No NC-17. You know, at the time of this release, anyways, in 1931. But the movie currently, if you give it a current rating today, would be PG for mild or implied violence, some frightening scenes, oh no, and one scene of tobacco use and one scene of alcohol consumption. Most of the violence in this film, though, happens off screen. It's a lot of noise effects. You know, people die and it's, ah, but you don't actually see it. Kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. Ooh, look at how I tied that back. But yeah, the original. You didn't see much. It's all in your mind. The budget for this film was between $340,000 to $355,000. Gross profits worldwide were a little over $85,000. And you, you think that's a failure. It would in today's era that would be a fail. That would be oh my god, this movie is abysmal. Not for the legacy this movie left behind. The synopsis. I got the synopsis from the back of one of my VHS tapes. There have been numerous numerous screen versions of Bram Stoker's Stoker's classic classic tale, tale, but but none none more more famous famous or enduring enduring as the the 1931 1931 original. original. 
towering ominously among the shadows of the Carpathian Mountains. Castle Dracula strikes fear in the hearts of the Transylvanian villagers below. After a naive real estate agent succumbs to the will of the Count, the two head to London where the vampire hopes to stroll among respectable society by day and search for potential victims by night. Starring Bella Lugosi as the screen's most popular vampire, Count Dracula, and directed by horror specialist Todd Brown. The film creates an eerie, chilling mood that has been rarely realized since. Notes from Carfax Abbey. Okay, so... Where to start? Let's see. Notably based on the 1897 Bram Stoker novel, this particular version was actually adapted from a stage play. And I mentioned that. Um, Stage play was seeing life on Broadway in 1927. And that stage play was written by Hamilton Dean and John Belt. Balderston. I can never say it. The amount of times, and you know, I actually like kept... Before I started recording this, I kept trying to rehearse his name because I wanted to call him Balderstein. Don't ask me why. It says Balderstein in my notes, and I keep saying Balderstein. (sighs) Whatever. I'm a stupid guy who pretends he's smart. Dracula was the first of many Universal Studio movie monsters, like er, monster movies, like I said. Spawning sequels of its own... Um, like I said, Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula, blah, 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 blah. But it also created its own universe. So we always talk about Marvel Cinematic Universe. We talk about the DCEU. And even in current day, they've tried to re-emulate this idea, this universe of characters. Monster Squad was gorgeous in bringing them all back together eventually in 1987. But... You know, it, Dracula was the one that started it. And next thing you knew, we had Frankenstein, the mummy, the wolfman, creature from the Black Lagoon, the Invisible Man, all these Universal Studio movies, even though they somewhat never really interlinked. I mean, there was times when they did, but uh, what was it? There was the wolfman. Is it the wolfman meets Frankenstein? Ah, shit. So many of the movies and I always get them confused. I know I've got that wrong. Someone's going to tell me I got that wrong. but um, <laughs> And then there's the Bride of Frankenstein, too. We even, you know, we created that character, the Bride, which I've talked about that movie on this podcast before, and it's an amazing movie. Probably, uh, I, will, I will come out and say this right now. Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein are my two favorites. They're my absolute two favorites. And uh, I, I have friends that, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon is their favorite. I know, know people who the Wolfman was their favorite. Um For me, it's Dracula and the Bride of Frankenstein. But, okay, so, I said I was going to talk about vampires. I was going to talk about where they originated. Now, going back in history, folklore and whatnot, it goes back to, like, the 1700s. But in terms of the first fictional vampire, in terms of, you know, literature and whatnot... Um, the vampire itself first appeared in poems, such as The Vampire from 1748 by Heinrich August Ossenfelder. 
There was uh, another poem called Lenore in 1773 by Gottfried August Berger. And there were a series of others that followed after that. In terms of novels, though, in terms of novels, uh, vampires uh, first originated in a publication by the English writer John Polidori. Uh, it was a story about a um, vampire known as Lord Ruthven, and the, the story itself was called The Vampire. Now, vampire, interestingly enough, was spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E. And you see that from time to time. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer spelt it V-A-M-P-Y-R. They knocked off the last E. But, I mean, most people know it's spelled with the I-R-E at the end. So, I mean, but the uh, the original story, uh, like first novel, was uh, The Vampire. And it was spelled with the Y-R-E ending. Bram Stoker's is arguably probably the most well-known novel. But do you know it actually followed another novel from 1872 known as Carmilla? It was written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. And Carmilla was partially inspired by the, uh, the stories of the blood countess herself, Elizabeth Bathory. And so you're wondering why I bring that up. Well, because Carmilla and the Vampire, the, the both novels, were inspirations to Stoker for him to create Dracula, as well as he found out about the stories of Vlad Tepes, otherwise known as Vlad the Impaler. And he incorporated that into the novel as well. So when you think about it, in terms of the, you know, the two novel publications that inspired this movie plus two real life history uh icons if you want to call them that it's probably not the best word to call. villains we'll call them villains there we go uh vlad tepes Elizabeth bathory all of this incorporated together gave us dracula and then this movie comes along but it was also based off of the stage play as well so you can see there was ins it drew inspirations from a whole bunch of different elements now at the same time this film was being um like being done it's kind of interesting they were they were filming a spanish version as well apparently this was something that hollywood did back in the day where they would they would sort of film two versions of a film at the same time one that would be in english and one that would be in foreign language so for this specific movie todd browning would film during the day he would film dracula and at night george melford who was the director of the spanish version was using the sets to make his version that starred, oh, I wrote this down, Carlos Valerius as Conda Dracula. And I know I'm saying that wrong because, granted, it had, it's got a Spanish twist on it. But And then, on top of all that, there was also a third silent film that was being made for this because in certain countries, certain theaters didn't have sound. So they made a silent version that would have, like, yeah, if you've seen silent films, you know, they'll show you a scene and then there's like wording on the screen and then they'll show you another scene and then there's wording. They call them intertitles. Well, the third version of this film had those intertitles. So 
it's kind of cool to think that at the you know at the time Todd Browning was filming this, there was technically three different versions being made all simultaneously. Bela Lugosi is a Hungarian stage actor who plays this character of Count Dracula. He was given the green light, but however, it was not their first pick. Universal Studios actually were looking to hit up Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney Sr., that is, was set to be the original actor to don the cape and the cowl or the glaring stare. However, he passed away right before filming commenced for this movie. So they went to the stage performance, you know, that inspired this, you know, the the screenplay and whatnot. And they got the main actor, Bela Lugosi. And he was picked to be the man in the shadows. Now let it be known, I'm going to say this right now, I love Bela's portrayal. It's iconic, it's suave, it's majestic, powerful. I could spit off a hundred adjectives, you know, for how much I love this. But I always toss it up between Christopher Lee and Gary Oldman as to who my actual favorite Dracula is. I love Bela Lugosi's. Don't get me wrong. But there's just something about those two versions that... I mean, come on. Dracula, 80s, 1972? (laughs) No, okay. I watched that one for Carolyn Monroe. But anyways... um. No, there's just, I've always appreciated Christopher Lee and Gary Oldman. But, I mean, at the same time, it starts with Bella. I mean, we could go, seriously, if we really want to, we could go to Max Schreck and his version of what Count Orlac in uh, Nosferatu. But that actually more was, you saw the inspiration Repeated years later in Salem's Lot. And most recently, Jacob's Wife, if you haven't seen that. Um, the Master in Jacob's Wife. Very much Nosferatu-like. When Bella Lugosi passed away, it's a known fact. Many fans know this. He was buried wearing a Dracula cape. I mean, it pretty much is the role he was most known for. He's Like I said, he's done other roles. I personally... My favorite Bela Lugosi role, probably, uh, I'd have to say, is in White Zombie. But this is a very, very, very close second. But the reason why I say it's a close second is because my favorite actor in this movie is actually Dwight Fry as Renfield. Oh, oh my God. He's, he steals the show for me. I mean, okay, so he was... He, in the 1930s, Dwight Fry became very well known for portraying villains. Uh, he was even nicknamed the man with the thousand watt stare. <laughs> and another nickname he had was the man of a thousand deaths. Um, because in the 30s especially, he was really good at portraying like mentally unbalanced characters. And yeah, he goes over the top sometimes, but it works. Uh, he uh, Now, I mentioned he was in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. In James Whale's Frankenstein, the first one, he played Fritz. And in the sequel, uh, his name was Carl, I believe it was. 
yet those are direct sequels. Like Bride is a direct sequel to Frankenstein, yet he played two different characters. Uh, in this film, his maniacal transformation, oh my god, from well-balanced businessman to raving lunatic is an absolute joy to watch. Rats, rats. Oh my god. And, and <laughs> I mean, by today's standards, yes, he would be considered way over the top. You know, too much so as that it, you couldn't take it seriously. But you gotta remember, filmmaking in the 1930s was a different beast altogether. And in order to convey the idea of his growing insanity, uh, we didn't have the additional elements of musical score. Lighting techniques to an extent, but it was a black and white film, so it can only do so much. Um, so in, in, in order for him to you know get the message across, it came down to a lot of facial expressions, uh, voice tones, uh, stuff like that. And so, I mean, yeah, you, you watch, you watch a movie. If, if you were to take this movie and let's say it was a brand new movie that came out in the theaters today, people would laugh this movie off. But 1931, this was considered like very creepy. Um, it was also the first vampire film to have speaking parts, you know, back then. I mean, especially in the twenties and whatnot, a lot of silent films came out. Um, Nosferatu obviously being one that I mentioned earlier um, the difference is the silent film still had I wouldn't call it a music score but they had music accompanying it um, where this there's no music there's musical cues in the film I don't want to say there isn't I mean the opening theme like the opening credits and whatnot has music and there's a scene where they 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 go to a performance and there's music playing and whatnot. Yes, obviously, but those are all derived from musical works that were previously recorded. Um, and if you even think about it, like 1968, you know, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead did not technically have a score created for it. I mean, it, musical scores were something that came a lot later. Um, when we talking about Dracula, there was no score. So when you're watching the film, you also notice that um, compared to movies today where, you know, there's always that lingering theme or, or score that's in the background. This, it's, there's no score. Uh, originally, the film was 85 minutes long. Now, just as it is today, even back in the 1930s, there were censors, there were, you know, there were those people that, you know, that can't be in the movie. Take it out. Or it'll get a rating. I mean, they didn't have a rating system back then, but they still had censors. And during the re-release of this movie in 1936, there were scenes that were edited out, which is what led to it eventually being a 75-minute movie. Um, there's an epilogue spoken by Edward Van Sloan, or Van Helsing, uh, that was completely cut from the film. Uh, it has resurfaced apparently in a documentary, um, but I, I guess I haven't seen it, so I, I can't comment on it, but I guess it's considered very unusable and they can't restore it, so it's just been left out of the film. Uh, as well as uh, there's some of the audio was muted in the re-release, specifically like death moans or death growls. Um, of Dracula and Renfield. Uh, 
Uh, Renfield, apparently some of his screams when he's dying were completely muted out. Um, from what I, from what my understanding is though, I mean, the versions I've seen, I've heard the screams, but that's because MCA Universal did eventually restore them. But as for the epilogue, completely taken out. And I mean, you got to remember also, this is a 1931 film that's been through the ringer. I'm sure there's seconds from, you know, certain scenes that are probably missing. I mean, you got to figure 10 minutes are missing from the movie, the original film. So there has to be footage that got lost somewhere along the way. Um, I mean, to date, most of the film has been restored. And I mean, it has a Blu-ray release. Just recently, um, what was it, two years ago? The classic Monsters. I have I have the DVD set. There's a Blu-ray set as well. So, I mean, this movie has seen the light of day on Blu-ray. So it's it's well restored to the best of its ability. Along with Night of the Living Dead, I'm going to say this. This is one of the films that started my hunger and thirst, I will call it. Uh, you know, it's it, the movie's integral to the love I have for the horror genre. I mean, Dracula doesn't affect me at a very young age. I, somewhere around four or five years old, you know. It, it's not a scary film. So, I mean, to see it at that age, I mean, people might say, oh, well, you know, you were too young. Not really. I mean, it's not scary. Not by today's standards anyways. But, I mean, this this movie, along, like I said, this and Night of the Living Dead were the two first horror films I ever saw. And from that moment on, it was like, this is my world. And it's, to this day, it hasn't stopped. <laughs> um, in 1931, though, okay, so I say it's not scary, but in 1931, there were some people feeling some anxiety from this. I mean, in the in the eyes of Hollywood, they considered Dracula to be a risky release. I mean, they weren't completely sure that audiences were going to be ready for a supernatural film with no comic relief. You know, there had been other movies out there. Um, one that gets mentioned a lot is The Cat and the Canary, which is like a, a murder thriller story. And I did mention Nosferatu, and plus there's ton of other silent films the phantom of the opera um even metropolis has some like creepy elements to it and whatnot i mean but a lot of those movies had comical moments or they had like a, a twist at the end that you know reduced the effect of the horror reduced the effect of the the shock dracula to hollywood was considered a big gamble they they weren't sure this was going to work and I mean, okay, so here's a funny story. The movie was released mainstream February 14th, but on February 12th at the Roxy Theater, it got an early viewing. And supposedly, people fainted from the shock of the horror. Oh, the macabre was just too much for them, and the movie they witnessed caused them to pass out. So, of course, the media did what the media always does. I'm still talking about this in 2021, people. The media likes to bring the fear and the hype to the masses, leading to the human race's need 
to feed their curiosity. So what did people do? People flocked to the theaters. They had to see Dracula. What was the big hype? What was so scary? What was going to cause my heart to race and I would fall to the ground out of fear? They had to know. The movie was a hit. I mean, like I said earlier, in terms of budget versus gross profits, yeah, it would be a failure. But the movie technically was a hit. Within the first 48 hours of its opening, the Roxy Theater sold, what, 50,000 tickets? And within the first week, uh, $700,000 profit? Which is weird because, you know, it supposedly the movie made 85000 but stories that came from the media said it made $700,000 profit. What's the real, what's the real number? I don't know. Maybe the media does that. They like to make up numbers. I don't know. Um, present stories will stay out of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, the hype. The hype was there. The movie was a hit. And like I said, hence came the sequels in the universe. And here we are in 2021. Movie makes a hit. Oh, must make a sequel. Oh, Sequel worked. Oh, we got to make a universe of this. Let's bring in other characters. It's what it's what it does. And we were doing this in 1931. Most of the media and the reporters that reported on the critical aspects of this gave it two thumbs up. They gave it five out of five, four out of four. I mean, uh, Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars. And rightfully so i can see ebert jumping all over something like this but again based on performances no gore you know and it's it's the idea that the actors were acting you know what i mean it's there's there's not a bland performance in this i highlight on bella lugosi and dwight fry but i mean edward van sloan is amazing in this um uh, everybody everybody that was in this David Manners is great as Jonathan Harker. He's not, and I love Keanu Reeves, don't get me wrong, but Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker is not that good. I've even said it. It's not good. He's great as Neo. He's great as John Wick. He's great as even Bill and Bill and Ted's. Like, Keanu Reeves is a great actor, but not in Dracula. <laughs> not in 1992, he wasn't. Um, the Chicago Tribune... All right, so when they and they did what I did with Pet Cemetery, I compared. Shouldn't have done that. Um, they did the same thing. They compared the stage performance with the film, and they concluded that, you know, the stage performance was scarier. But they also did say that the movie was quite a satisfactory thriller. So I mean, they walked away from it, going, "All right, it's a three out of four stars. Stage performance is better, but not a bad movie." Um, Empire, Empire Magazine gave, gave the movie a four out of five stars. They call it stagey and creepy, but then they follow it up with that. It has wonderful and memorable moments. Absolutely. It has some memorable moments. I mean, everything from the quotes of, you know, the children of the night and all that, who doesn't know where that comes from? Like even people who are not horror fans. People who are rom-com nerds know where, listen to them, the children of the night, what beautiful music they make. Everybody knows where that comes from. Um, I mean, and Bella Lugosi has been lauded as the face of Dracula. You know, he's the perception of what 
the popular vampire should be. And then, of course, you know, it, obviously we've had different iterations. We've had everything from the Lost Boys to fucking Twilight. But Lugosi is pretty much considered the Count Dracula, you know. He didn't want to be typecast as the Count. I mean, it's something that, you know, he he was really afraid of. And it happened anyways. But it's a vision that's become synonymous with his name and with the look. And, I mean, is referenced... In influencing what everything from books, you know, movies, um, songs. Bella Lugosi's "Dead" by Bauhaus. I mean, they even call him the Count in the song. I mean, there's a breakfast cereal for crying out loud, Count Chocula. And when you look at the character of Count Chocula, you see the Bella Lugosi resemblance. I mean, he is the Count. With a 92% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, here's the Podcast Zero rating. And I don't want to reiterate so much that I've already said, but I will say this. It's obviously one of two films that started my thirst for horror. It's iconic, quotable, obviously I've been quoting it as I've been doing this, and it's an inspiration. It's an inspiration for anything and everything that has a vampiric twist in it, somehow or another, this movie affected that. Um, and I mean, okay, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but the movie even somewhat inspired Twilight. Not in many ways, because Stephanie Meyer was, like, insistent that she was going to change the fucking vampire lore. Yeah, yeah, we're, well, she was successful amongst tweens, but that's about it. <laughs> um and tween girls at that. I mean, there are not many guys that are like, oh, Twilight rules. But I mean, it, it, it's... 1931, Todd Browning, Dracula, has inspired everything. Lugosi himself is a gem. But Dwight Fry rules. I'm sorry, his Renfield is just too fucking good. I just, I love it. And I love the aesthetic of the film. I know that, you know, and... It's been pointed out, you know, the, the cathedral stairs and whatnot is a stage. The castle itself was a painting on a glass window and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, whatever. I, I get it. Like, it's not... Visually, this doesn't meet up to Lord of the Rings. I get that. But there's just something about those 1930s movies that... I don't need it to wow me i don't need it to be like gladiator where you know they're standing in front of a green screen but it looks like they're standing in the you know the coliseum in rome like i don't i I didn't need this i also know there's a colorized version of this film i haven't seen it and i won't i i want it black and white it has to stay that way um i don't own this movie in blu-ray i admit it there's a part of me that almost doesn't want to I will say that for the last three decades, though, I've had I've owned this movie in some format or another, including two DVD re- uh, releases. And at one point, I had a VHS, and then that tape got ruined, and I bought another one. Um, Dracula is kind of one of those staples that needs to stay in my collection, no matter how I own it. And if it be digital, then I will get it digitally. I won't get it digitally. <laughs> I am not trusting the cloud with a movie like this. But... Um, you would basically have to be living under a rock or living in some part of the world that doesn't have electricity or running water to not know this movie. 
That's exactly the kind of movie this is. It's exactly the kind of the rating this movie is going to get from this podcast. It's 10 out of 10 children of the night making beautiful music. It's 100% gothic gorgeousness. Yeah, maybe the bats were merely puppets on strings and fishing rods in this film. But in that case, then fine. The movie gets 10 bats on a string out of 10. Like, it's, it's a... It's an imperfect film which makes it perfect. I don't need it to be a CGI fest like Black Widow. You know, which, yeehaw. Black Widow, I know, I shouldn't even do this. I can't even compare the two. They're nowhere even in the same league. But I'm going to do this because I have to prove a point on something here. In a movie like that that I watched last night, so it's fresh in my mind, and that's probably why I keep going to this movie, but... Here's a movie that had so much potential to tell a great story and it ruined it with a lot of CGI. You go back to 1931, here's a story that's somewhat basic. It's not a big story to tell. Uses no CGI, very little special effects. It's all based in the performances and the movie is 100% perfect. Imperfectly, but perfect. It is exactly... As it is what it needs to be, it's legendary, it's golden, it's iconic. And on that note, I thank you for listening. I thank you for coming back. I know it took me a bit to come back. I apologize. Blame the summer heat. It melted my brain. If only I was a blood drinker, I could have gotten the essence of life from sucking the blood of my victims but no that's something also um i should say that in this movie we technically never see dracula's fangs nor do we actually see him drink blood it's all implied it's kind of funny how a movie like again like i said implied caused fear texas chainsaw massacre didn't see much caused fear um I know I always go to TCM about that, but its I think it's because it's probably one of the greatest massacre movies that really had no massacre on the screen, aside from a girl getting put up on a hook. But um, again, and we didn't actually see it, but people thought they saw it because of what it was implied. And that's exactly what this movie did. This movie has you know, a, a, a blood-sucking vampire that you don't actually see him sucking blood. And he doesn't suck at all in this movie. But anyways. So yes, thank you for coming back. Thank you for tuning in. Um, obviously, you know where to find the podcast if you're listening to it. You're listening to it somewhere. It's, uh, it's on almost every streaming app from Spotify, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, FM Player, Podcast Addict. It's, it's everywhere and it's easily accessible and that's awesome. I should say that the movie Dracula is easily accessible. You can find it almost every year at Halloween. Everyone from Target to Walmart to, you know, your local corner store is practically selling this movie because it's just, it's that iconic. And it's a Halloween tradition for a lot of people as well. Um, myself included. Every year I usually take it in at least once somewhere. Well, it, heck, when I was a kid, used to watch it on... Um, uh, Shocktober with uh, Count Scary. <laughs> Count Scary was inspired by Bella Lugosi's Dracula. You know, uh, DJ out of Detroit, Tom Ryan, 
was Count Scary based on his inspired feelings from Bella Lugosi's performance. I mean, and granted, he hammed it up and was corny and whatnot, but again, that's what he did. Um, and I also mentioned Shocktober because AMC did just announce their uh, Fear Fest that uh, the month of October, they're bringing back Fear Fest, month-long of horror films, some new ones, some old ones. And I saw people complaining that, well, why would I want to watch a movie with commercials? Why would I want to watch a movie at a certain time when I can just get it whenever I want on the internet? Yeah, well, you know what? See, when we grew up as kids, we had this thing um, where we looked forward to Halloween because we got to watch those, you know, horribly edited movies, and we still loved the shit out of it. And AMC is just bringing back the nostalgia, man. Uh, yeah, I get it. They show the Halloween movies not in the right order. And for some reason, Halloween 2 is the Rob Zombie one instead of, you know, the 1981 version. But it is what it is. And we don't complain about it, those of us that live through that. So that's that. Uh, as I said, you can find the podcast on podcast apps on social media. You can find it on Facebook.com slash What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero. It's also on Instagram at What Lurks Behind Podcast Zero and on Twitter. Um next episode i'm actually going to announce next episode because uh, i kind of got inspired got inspired to do something a little crazy a little bit different we're going off the rails next episode next episode is reviewing a movie you would not expect me to review on this podcast but i kind of got thinking back to last halloween and i remember i did a certain special episode where i reviewed an animated special you guys all know I'm talking about it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown and you know that that episode kind of went over really well and then at Christmas time I did the movie Alien Xmas which was another somewhat horror sci-fi Christmas special I mean granted for kids but it was fun and I started thinking you know I kind of like when I do those family presentations you know and then I mean not so long ago I was talking about the Addams Family animated movie on this podcast and I was like okay well I don't want to do Addams Family just yet but what's another family property that has horror elements oh well see I'm a dog lover I'm sure you just figured it out right there but anyways I'm a dog lover and I love horror and I love spooky shit and a certain someone has been teasing his possible return to the Scream franchise with Scream 5. Now, whether or not that's going to happen or not, he could be just fucking with people online. But Matthew Lillard has said Stu Mocker is not dead. And we may see him in Scream 5. So I put all these elements together. I'm thinking family presentation. I'm thinking I love dogs. I'm thinking Matthew Lillard. I'm thinking Scooby-Doo. How about it? Yeah. So the next episode, episode 103, will be a review for the live-action Scooby-Doo film. The first one. I'm not going to do the second one. Well, maybe I'd do them both, but no. I'll probably do just the first one. So that's the episode you have to look forward to, and you're all like, that's it, unsubscribe. I'm not listening to this guy anymore. But <laughs> anyways, uh, thank you for tuning in. I know I kind of got away from playing music at the end of the episodes, kind of wanted to try and do some different things, but I feel it's only right. I have to do it. This week's episode will end with a musical number 
um, because we have to we have to pay tribute to the count. We have to pay tribute to the man that made Dracula what it is today for so many of us. So we're gonna end this show off doing it properly with um, a song called "Ring Around the Rosie." No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Bella Lugosi's "Dead" by Bauhaus. I have to do it. I, I have to end this show off with that. So. I'm going to let Bauhaus take it, but not until Al Pacino says, What? You need to shut the fuck up. He licked my plate, Doctor. Yeah. <laughs>